Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please stand for our opening prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, with now and ever into the ages of ages. Amen. Uh, Join me in singing Regina Celi Letare Alleluia Quia Quemeruisti Portare Alleluia Resurrexit Sicutixit Alleluia Ora pro nobis Deum. Alleluia. Thank you, Father Joseph. This coming Sunday, some of you know that I will be ordained to the Holy Diaconate in the Melkite Greek Catholic Church. Thank you. The ordination will take place in the context of the liturgy. My brother, who will be teaching here this summer, is currently driving from Nebraska because he will be blessed as reader and subdeacon the same day. It'll be quite a liturgical experience. Our speaker tonight is Assistant Professor of Theology at Christendom College, where he teaches courses in Sacred Scripture, Revelation, and Christology. He has earned degrees in philosophy and theology at Yale College and Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut, and he resides with his wife and three children in Front Royal, Virginia, where I live. Uh, and he is currently finishing his doctoral thesis concerning the biblical interpretation. Please welcome Professor Eric Janislawski. inviting me. I look forward to congratulating you on the diaconate next time. Uh, as you probably know, this is a two-part talk, so we'll be starting this evening in an exploration of Paul's letter to the Galatians. But I wanted to set a little bit of context so that we know what we're reading in the letter and why Paul wrote the letter. And so today I was hoping first to set a little bit of background uh, for the epistle to the Galatians, and then to talk just for a minute. It seems that uh, of all these talks, if no one has yet explained uh, the right way to go about reading a Pauline letter, I was going to spend a few minutes talking about how to read one of these letters, and then to dive into the main issue, which is justification by faith. But we'll probably start reading Paul's argument this evening, and then get into the Lutheran-Catholic debate in part two of the talk. So for this evening, I wanted to start with the big picture. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be saved from sin and death, and enjoy an afterlife of beatitude with God in heaven. The very good question to the very good news is, how then are we saved from sin and death? What ought man do in order to be saved from sin and death, and to enjoy everlasting beatitude with God in heaven? That is the concrete circumstance for the writing of Paul's letter to the Galatians. 
And so Paul had to devote an entire epistle to just this topic and parts of several others, including Romans and Hebrews. And I wanted to start with the circumstances that forged this letter so that we understand why Paul is writing and to whom Paul is writing and what Paul is arguing in the letter and then how it applies to us today. Is that good as a game plan? Okay, good. So some background, I apologize, this one had turned into yet another handout if everyone has them. Uh, I tried to uh, do a little bit more in terms of doing some backgrounding for you. But to start with the big picture, we might start with the Great Commission. Does everyone know what the Great Commission is? Matthew 28:18. Go therefore and make disciples all of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the instruction of the risen Lord to his disciples that concludes Matthew's Gospel. Now notice there, uh, this is the beginning of the Catholicity of the Church. Go therefore and baptize all nations. Uh, maybe you know that the word Catholic Church could likewise be translated universal assembly in the Greek. This is the gathering, the religious assembly of people from all nations under heaven. And so this is the text that launches the apostolic initiative of evangelization. Go therefore and baptize all nations. Now another nice text of the risen Lord to his disciples is found in John. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And if you wanted a little thesis statement that gets us into the book of Acts which gives us our history of the earliest three decades of the church, that might be a nice one. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Because we see in the book of Acts, the apostles beginning to take upon themselves many of the ministries that were formerly distinctive of Jesus. They heal the sick. They expel demons. They raise the dead. They forgive sins. And like our Lord, they are persecuted. They're hunted by the Pharisees, they're thrown in prison and scourged, and as we know, St. Peter will go to his death by crucifixion in Rome at the end of his life, and Paul will follow him. And so the apostles begin to start in and around Jerusalem, the carrying out of this great commission to evangelize. They wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's in Acts 2, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And then Peter goes out and preaches that first marvelous sermon of the new evangelization, and 3,000 Jews are added that day to the church. Then Peter, James, and John begin to evangelize in and around Jerusalem and Judea in Acts 3 through 7. And Acts 7 witnesses the first major act of Christian persecution with the death of St. Stephen, the first martyr. Now maybe you know that saying comes to us from Tertullian that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we see that pattern already because as soon as St. Stephen is stoned, first we meet the man holding his coat, Saul. We'll hear from him a little bit later. And we read in Acts 8.1 that Saul was consenting to his death. But in Acts 8 we read about something first, which is at that moment all the disciples scatter from Jerusalem, except for the apostles who stay headquartered in this central location of the church. And they begin to go out and evangelize, not only through Judea, but into Samaria and beyond, going to synagogues preaching to Jews. And so the first seven chapters of Acts, into Acts 8, we see the apostles going to the Jews, to the Jews, to the Jews, and again to the Jews. The church at this point in time, in Acts 7, is 
100% Jewish Christian. No Gentiles yet. What happened to the go therefore and baptize all nations? We have to wait two more chapters for that to begin to be fulfilled. Now Acts 9 shows us something very important, which is the conversion of Saul and his becoming Paul, the apostle as you know him, the apostle to the Gentiles. So if you have your Bibles, we can open it up to Acts. If you'd like to read just a little bit of Acts, we'll read a little of Acts 9, a little of Acts 10, and then the very important Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem, all as backdrop to this question of how Gentiles ought to be received into the church. So take a look with me at Acts 9. You probably know the story. It's the road to Damascus story. Paul, blinded by the light, it's become a very common story, told and told again in Christian tradition. So here's Acts 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. Why? Because our Lord teaches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it was first called the way. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go into the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands upon him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. And then what immediately does Paul do? For several days he stayed with the disciples at Damascus. And in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem 
of those who called upon this name. And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then we see Saul, now named Paul, goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and has a similarly tepid reception there. Everyone is afraid of him. And then eventually consults with Peter, James, and John, and the narrative moves on. But I wanted to focus on a couple of brief things. This is a beautiful passage, and one could do like a whole Pauline theology in miniature if we had time just with the first moments of Paul's experience of the risen Lord. Uh, first off, notice what he says. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Where's our Lord at this point in time, Acts 9? He's in heaven. He's sitting in glory at the right hand of the Father. Whom is Saul persecuting? The church on earth. So with the very first moment that Saul is introduced to Jesus... It's with this identity between Jesus and his mystical body, the church on earth. The other thing, just to keep in the back of your mind as we read through uh, one of Paul's letters, is uh, the great sovereignty of faith and grace in Paul. We don't have time to do a full-dress Pauline biography, uh, but Paul had it pretty good for somebody growing up in the first century. We know his father was a Roman citizen. Uh, we know that he was a wealthy man. We know he was a Hellenized Jew. And dad afforded for Paul one of the best theological educations that a pious Jew could hope to have at the time. Sent to Jerusalem where he had family and educated under the star rabbi Gamaliel, whose opinions are still consulted by Jews in the Mishnah to this day. So Paul had lots of advantages. Wealth, education, tremendous energy and zeal. But think about it. When all that added up in his life, to where we find him in Acts 7 and 8 and 9, Paul is doing exactly the opposite thing that he should be doing. Imagine his, imagine his astonishment as a pious Jew discovering that he is not promoting, but rather persecuting the Messiah, whom he discovers to be Jesus Christ. So when you think about Paul's 180-degree turnaround, that begins to give us some insight into the primacy of grace and the primacy of faith in Paul's writing. And we could go on and do more, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on the background. But this is Paul's moment of conversion, and in some ways I think it stamps its model and teaches Paul certain things right from the get-go about what it means for each of us to so be moved by God as to embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. So I just wanted to flag that as we wade in and to think in our minds about how this moment would have impressed Paul's mind with this primacy of grace and faith uh, from this moment forth, and we see it reflected in his letters. Now, Paul goes to the Jews and to the Jews and to the Jews, and they particularly don't like Paul. It's easy to dismiss the uneducated Galilean bumpkins. Oh, they think Jesus is the Messiah. They've gotten carried away. Someone has come and stirred them all up. And in some ways, the apostles, of course, preach with great fervor and speak with an authority that 
exceeds what men could expect them to have by nature and by training, so that's all the more impressive. But the enemies of the apostles seem to take a particularly fervent dislike to Paul. Uh, and it's in some ways natural. You see that sad pattern in converts who come to have a great deal of faith. Maybe some or fame, I should say. Uh, maybe some of you know John Henry Newman. Yes, and so uh, the, the great Anglican prelate who began at Oxford to uh, take up this movement to return Anglicanism to its historical Christian foundations, called the Tractarian Movement. And it wanted to uh, look at the early church as a model for making Anglicanism more Christian. The idea, perhaps, over the centuries, it had wandered away from some core Christian foundation. And the more Newman studied, the more he came up uh, with what he produced as his little maxim, to begin to be historical is to cease to be Protestant. And eventually that led him to one very unavoidable conclusion, that he ought to convert and join the Catholic Church and leave the Church of England. And it was a celebrated conversion, and he had to write an apology for his whole you know, life and leaving the Anglican Church, entering the Catholic Church. And Newman spoke to many people and was a very uh, prominent spokesman for Catholicism. But his relation with the Anglicans was tense, <laughs> to say the least, ever afterwards. You can see a similar pattern in other converts. I had the pleasure of studying the papers of a, a Monsignor named John Osterreicher, who was instrumental in writing uh, the Second Vatican Council document, Nostra Aetate, the first positive declaration by an ecumenical council about the church's relation to non-Christian religions. Osterreicher was instrumental in opening up a whole new century of dialogue between Catholics and Jews that had not existed in that way before the Second Vatican Council, and there were hundreds of local, national, and international dialogues that sprung up largely in part of his work. Was he involved in any of these table-to-table -table discussions? Not a single one. No one would have him in a discussion. Why? He was a convert. He was an Austrian Jew who converted in his teens to become a Catholic and then later went on to become ordained a priest and had great care and fervency for the Jewish people, both during the war and afterwards. But because of that background, he was in some ways especially shut out from speaking to his own people. And so too Paul. We see here that God has a plan for him, though. That initial rejection by the Jewish people was not accidental. From the very first moment we see Saul's conversion, God says... I have a plan for him. He is to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles, but not yet. Acts 10 gives us the first conversion of a Gentile to Christianity. And it's not at the hand of Paul, it's at the hand of Peter. So take a look at Acts 10 with me, and we'll see the reception of the first Gentile into the church. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms liberally to the people and constantly prayed to God, coming off of Lent. There's a nice spiritual model. Prayer, almsgiving. About the ninth hour, hour of mercy, having just celebrated Divine Mercy Sunday, that's three o'clock. The ninth hour, the Roman day starts at six. So at the hour of mercy... Uh, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. 
And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, for he is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from amongst those that waited on him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the scene flashes to Peter's side of this. The next day, as they were on their journey, coming near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So it's noontime. Peter's hungry. He's dreaming about lunch. And he became hungry and desired something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That's my RSV translation. I don't know what other translations you may have. Uh, the Greek word there is ekstasis. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. It's a little bit dated, but religious ecstasy. It literally means to stand outside oneself. It's this uh, sense of when one receives a revelation from God, just like a dream state, the mind is receiving information, but the body is not doing anything. So Peter falls into a trance, has an ecstasy, as it were. And he saw the heaven open and something descending like a great sheet, let down by four corners upon the earth. So here comes the tablecloth. It's about to set the table. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, Lord. There's the great choleric Peter. You catch him off guard and he's immediately telling Jesus what to do. No, Lord. For I have, eaten, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So this is not kosher. Are you all familiar with the Jewish uh, rules about eating? They have a kosher law that separates pure from impure things, foods, peoples, behaviors. Uh, not simply reducible to hygiene or something that might be diseased, but it's two categories of things, permissible and impermissible, pure and impure. And so Peter's instructed to have crab cake and bacon. And he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed. You must not call common. Now remember that for a second when the men get there from Caesarea. This thing happened three times, so apparently the second time was not enough to convince the Petrine mind that this was okay. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean, that's your first clue that it's not just about lunch. Because it seems pretty simple. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat this food. No, it's not kosher. No, really, eat it. And then when the vision goes back up to heaven, he's still thinking. He hasn't figured it entirely out. So that's your first clue that there's something deeper going on in this passage that's going to relate to what's to come. Behold, the men that were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood before the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one whom you seek. What is the reason for your coming? And then they explain Cornelius' vision of the angel. So the next day, he meaning Peter, this is verse uh, 23 now, rose and went off with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the next day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his kinsmen and close friends. 
When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase comedy of errors. But in terms of like a poignant literary touch about Jew meets Gentile for the first time in the church, oh, what a guffaw. He fell down at his feet and he worshipped him. And then Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Uh, This is in some ways emblematic, right? What's the problem with those Gentile people, you might ask a pious Jew? They worship anything. (laughs) Anything at all. Sun, moon, stars, powerful animals, idols. They're just doing one constant polytheism-a-thon over there, and then look what happens. Cornelius tries to find some gesture of respect and falls down at Peter's feet and worships him, and Peter's like, stop that. So it's a slightly tense moment in Jew meeting Gentile in the church. But look what Peter says. And as he talked, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is For a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent me. So there the light bulb goes on. Peter, do you see that? Goes from the vision of the clean and unclean animals to an application about what was once considered clean and unclean people. The separation of the foods symbolic of the separation of the peoples. And that is, uh, you know, one, reflected in this Acts account, and two, in the vision itself, but also the social function of the kosher law. I don't know, we have, I have some, some classmates, Lucas and Peter, know about the kosher kitchen uh, at Alma Mater at Yale University. Uh, we've got dining halls for, you know, the common students, but if you want to keep kosher, Yale has its own kosher kitchen. Because it's not like you can just bring your kosher food in the midst of all this unkosher stuff. There's laws about contact. You have to be separated from things that are impure, receive a ritual immersion. Sometimes there's a waiting period. And so when you come into contact with unclean things, it's not like you can just bounce around from clean and unclean and waltz in and out of a clean and unclean state. The kosher laws, the rules against contamination and contact with dead things, with things Gentiles themselves have been messing with, and you don't know whether they're clean or unclean, tend to socially isolate people. It's a way of keeping Israel separate from the Gentiles and their morals during this period of Israel's formation. And so Peter sees reflected in the abolition of this distinction between clean and unclean animals, the abolition of the wall separating Jew from Gentile, that he may now go in and be amongst the household of Cornelius to receive him into the church. So Peter preaches the gospel to them in 1034. And then something amazing happens in 1044. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from amongst the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone forbid water? for baptizing those people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with him for some days. So there we see the first baptism of a Gentile being incorporated into the Catholic Church at the hands of Peter. Now this begins to initiate a whole new wave of evangelization. And when Paul comes back, 
having had some time for prayer and recollection, in Acts 13 and in Acts 14, he begins those three great missionary journeys of St. Paul. Now, on the handout I gave you, I tried to uh, snitch some maps from the internet just to do nice, clear, black and white maps. You can take a look at those journeys. They're described, the first one in Acts 13 and 14, the second one in Acts 16, and then the third one is long and is described in many chapters of Acts. But just to get a sense of where Paul goes, you can see his missionary travels. And there in the first missionary journey, Paul begins to receive a large number of Gentiles into the church. Now this provokes no small controversy. Because when Paul goes amongst them and preaches the gospel and baptizes, he receives them into the church in the same way Peter had. Preaching the gospel to them, hearing them attest their faith and belief, and giving them baptism. But there are others in the church who say, no, 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 no. That's not enough. It's not enough that they simply receive baptism. They must be circumcised and they must keep the law of Moses if they desire to be saved. And these people are called by various titles in Acts and in Paul's epistles. Sometimes Paul calls them Judaizers. Why? Because they want to Judaize everybody before they Christianize them. They have to be made Jewish first before they are made Christian. Or sometimes they are called the circumcision party. Doesn't sound like much of a party. But... <laughs> But the, the idea there is that's their party line. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Sometimes Paul is a little bit acerbic and calls them false brethren. You know, do you know what that means? It's like calling them pseudo-Christians, right? Orate fratres, pray brethren. So by calling them false brethren, uh, it's like pseudo-Christians. They don't actually get or receive or teach the gospel. So they go by several different names, and then sometimes they're called Pharisee Christians, we see that in the book of Acts. They're sometimes called Pharisee Christians, people from that rigorous branch of Judaism who converted to Christianity. And so in some ways that kind of makes sense. If you think about this, just people tend to dismiss this group as the, the first crazy Christian heresy, but it might be kind of natural, right? Uh, everybody else in the church at this time had gone through the standard Jewish initiation. They had received circumcision either at their conversion or the eighth day if they were born into the religion. And then they had learned to keep the law of Moses. That's what the bar mitzvah is all about. It's your becoming an adult in Judaism and showing that you know how to read and interpret and therefore apply the law, usually at age 13. And then every one of them had experienced the good news either in the person of Jesus Christ or in the proclamation of the gospel and then entered the final covenant in covenant history, the covenant of Jesus Christ. So they went through the covenant with Abraham, Moses, and then Jesus. Would it not then be natural to expect everybody else to do the same thing? That seems to have been the position of the Pharisee Christians. Now remember, these are the rigorists too. These people love their rules. And as Catholics, perhaps we can understand that a little bit. <laughs> we sometimes have to fend off the threat of Pharisaism. And it's important to understand what Pharisaism is. It's not just love for the law of Moses. It's people making rules around the rules around the rules, right? Law of Moses says, don't eat bugs, except for locusts. They're kosher bugs. You might not want to eat bugs, but sometimes it happens, yes? Motorcycle, mouths open, iced tea on a summer day. 
Now, unintentionally, if you ingest the bog, is that you know, contrary to the spirit of the law of Moses? No. Is it contrary to the letter? Yeah. So be careful when you drink. But the Pharisees devised a policy. You've got to strain. Before you drink, strain. That way you make sure, no little gnats, boom, and you violated the law of Moses. Then to top that off, you know, they equated this piety with observance of the law. If you're a pious Jew, you strain. If you don't strain, you don't care. So you better strain. And if you're not straining, we'll accuse you of disregard of the law of Moses. Or the Sabbath precept, don't work too hard on the Sabbath. Avoid servile labor. Well, a walk can be nice. Does a long walk become onerous? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly how long? They're not satisfied with that ambiguity. Around Jewish cities, there was sometimes a perimeter carved out beyond step number 10,002 or whatever it was. You would officially begin to work on the Sabbath. Turn back. So Pharisaism is about a high level of legality. Rules around the rules. In fact, uh, you see it in the Talmud. Build fences around the Torah, the Talmud says. And so these people are rigorists. And it would make sense, just to have a little sympathy for their position, that when receiving Gentiles in the church, well, you don't receive them in willy-nilly. Just expect them to do anything. Well, what's their religious life going to look like? Well, obviously, it would be to be an observant man of religion like all the rest of us Jews. That could have been another motivation for this Judaizing position. But there becomes a controversy in the church, and it becomes the first potentially church-splitting controversy. Acts 13 and Acts 14. You see a little hint of it in Acts 10. If you're, if you're a subtle reader, in Acts 10, when Peter's watching the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, and the believers from amongst the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed, says verse 45, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Those previously impure Gentiles of barbarous morals and idolatrous past, even on them. There's a little bit of incredulity expressed there, isn't it? And so that is the harbinger of sad things to come, because as Paul and Barnabas go out and bring Gentiles into the church, there becomes a major rift. Some are insisting, unless they are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that becomes a pretty important matter of faith and morals, does it not? Are you saved by virtue of your baptism and your faith? Or not? Was all of that somehow invalid, maybe to use a canon law term, because you had not been circumcised when you heard the gospel and you were not keeping kosher? So that's the occasion of the first ecumenical council of the church. Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem, sometime 49, 50 AD. And this will be our last little bit of background. I hope it's not too long. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, reporting the conversion of the Gentiles, and they gave great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses.
And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to, continue, to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice amongst you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So that's a reference back to Acts 10. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you make a trial of God? by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So that's Peter's judgment at the Council of Jerusalem. And those will become central statements for understanding what we read in the letter to the Galatians. So is that general backdrop and now zeroing in on the issue of the conversion of the Gentiles. Now here's how it comes to such a head that Paul has to write an entire epistle about it. Paul goes through Galatia. And if you look on the map, the back side, the big map, is probably the clearest one. Galatia is a region. It's not a town or a city. It's kind of like New England. It's a region. And so he goes through Galatia on his first missionary journey. Goes to the southern Galatian territory, plants churches. Second missionary journey, goes through the south again, goes into the north, plants more churches. Everything seems fine. But sometime in the third missionary journey, Paul travels through there again and discovers that somebody has been sowing weeds amongst the wheat. When he checks up on his Galatian churches, he finds it rife with this Judaizing error. Someone has been teaching them that they weren't saved, and that they should go back, start over, receive circumcision, keep the works of the law of Moses, and that this is the only way to salvation. So that occasions a very angry letter by St. Paul. Now, all the epistles are letters. That's all it means to be an epistle. They're written according to the needs of various circumstances. We're basically reading Paul's mail. Did you ever read somebody else's mail? Don't admit it to me if you open the letter. It's a federal offense. But, uh, but if you happen to come across somebody else's mail, kind of like walking into a room when somebody else is having a telephone conversation, you only get half of the story. right? We get Paul's side of the conversation. There's often an exchange of letters. We know there was an exchange of letters in Corinth. We don't have the Corinthians' letters to Paul. We have Paul's letter to the Corinthians. But when you walk into an epistle... It's useful to remember that we are hearing one side of the conversation and sometimes we have to reconstruct. That's why I spend so much time getting into the background of this letter because otherwise you wonder to whom is Paul speaking and why. So take a look at the letter to the Galatians. And since to save a little time, I gave another handout on the structure of a Pauline letter. Every letter has a structure. If mama taught you well, you know how to write a proper letter. Dear so-and-so, comma, and then you don't get down to business, you have preliminaries. It was nice to see you the other day. You don't just throttle somebody and ask them what you know, they can do for you. You have some preliminaries. And then, because we are information-saturated, very driven people, and we're trained to write with a thesis statement in the first paragraph, you want the money right away. After the hello, nice to see you, you want what's up in the very first paragraph. Not so in classical epistolary style. Paul is writing these letters to be read aloud. Keep in mind, no kinkos. Copying this thing out by hand, they would be dumbfounded that I could make 
60 copies, which wasn't enough, I apologize, uh, for people in 10 minutes. Done. No. These letters were read aloud, so they often borrow a rhetorician's style of presentation because Paul writes them to be read. And so in the classical rhetorical pattern, the thesis is in the middle of the letter. So if you take a look at the handout I gave you with the structure of a Pauline letter, that'll help us uh, get to the payload of the epistle a little more quickly. I was going to do like a full dress reading through all the parts, but I want to speed up a little bit because I don't want to keep you here too long. I know you're a captive audience. But we'll get the beginning of the letter, and then we'll skip right to the propositio, which is the thesis, the centerpiece of the argument, and we'll see how that picks up neatly on Peter and his teaching at the Council of Jerusalem. So take a look at Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So Paul starts with a little bit of defensiveness. If we had time to do a comparison, you could take a look at Paul's opening greetings to other churches, but he almost interrupts himself. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, stresses his apostolic credentials right from the start. And that indeed, of people who have been sent... He is one who has been sent by the risen Lord himself, first generation, first rank apostle. Why? Well, we don't know who the Judaizers exactly were, but we know they weren't apostles. Already, there is a framing of this letter polemically. Paul is on the warpath, and he wants to stress that his authority and his discipleship are directly from the Lord, and whomever these Judaizers might be, they are of inferior station. And then a focus on the cross from the outset. Because this is going to be the problem in Galatia. They've lost sight of the cross. Paul continues, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's a nice point to remember for us as modern Catholics too. How often do people who wish to descend from church teaching try to reframe the debate in terms of, well, your take on Catholicism says this and my take on Catholicism says that. You're a conservative Catholic. I'm a liberal Catholic. You're a Ratzinger Catholic. I'm a Father Space Cadet Catholic. So uh, Paul wants to rephrase and be very careful. This is not Pauline Christianity versus Pharisee Christianity. This is a matter of fidelity to the gospel or not. And there's only one. And this is the ancient Christian understanding of the term gospel. When we do the gospels at Christendom, I'm very careful to observe it's singular in the early church. We get in the habit of talking about the four gospels. Before their books, they're a message. And in the traditional formulations, the most accurate, the gospel according to Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. For the earliest church, there's one gospel, which is the good news that Jesus proclaimed. And then there are four written accounts thereof. 1.8 is a great verse to remember. If you ever need to embellish, some might say vandalize, but I'll say embellish, uh, a Book of Mormon that you find in the hotel drawer, or a Watchtower magazine handed to you by Jehovah's Witnesses, or a copy of the Quran. Uh, 
How timely. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be, oh, and the RSV drops the ball, accursed. You know what the Greek is by any chance? Yeah, if you're reading Douay, anathema. It's Paul that actually teaches the early Christian churches how to anathematize. It was, it was a synagogue practice before it was a Christian practice. People that made themselves, by their doctrine or by their morals, enemies of the community, could be cut off, anathematized. And so Paul brings this into play in dealing with these Judaizers, infecting his Galatian church. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be anathema. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of Christ. The Judaizers might have painted Paul as a laxist. Oh, that Paul. He likes to pack churches. That's why he went soft on you and only gave you the sweet and easy parts of the gospel. But we rigorists, we Pharisee Christians, have come to tell you the whole truth. And that's going to involve a lot more. Beginning with circumcision, if that's not enough, the law of Moses on top of it. So the next bit, from 1.13 all the way down to 2.14, is what's called the narratio. And you can read about that in the handout I gave you. But it's basically giving everyone the backstory, filling in the history of the controversy, so that everyone who hears this letter might know precisely why Paul is writing at this time. We're not going to read through it, but I want to get us to the chief thesis of the epistle so that we can start drilling into it. 2.15, Paul says, We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no man be justified. And then he says a little later in 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. So that's going to be the central thing that Paul wants to defend. That we are justified through faith and not by works of the law. Now there's going to be four important terms that we have to grasp well conceptually to interpret this epistle correctly. And most of them appear here. Justification, works of the law, faith, and another one mentioned briefly, it will come into the four in chapter five, which is freedom. Those are going to be the four central terms that we need to understand what Paul means in order to grasp his meaning here correctly. Justification, works of the law, faith, and freedom. Now, works of the law is the easiest one. Works of the law of what? Of Moses. No sane exegete would propose otherwise as the literal meaning of this term. Works of the law of Moses. In fact, usually when Paul wants to speak shorthand, he'll say works of the law or just the law. The historical setting of the epistle, the context in Acts, the things Paul says later in the letter, all make it plain works of the law of Moses. Anything done in obedience to those precepts found in Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses. Now, one question to keep in your back of your minds for next time is, how do we get from that very delimited phrase, works of the law of Moses, 
to the full-bore Protestant sense of works. When they read this letter and they read Romans, how do you get this very wide notion of work, which is anything of a voluntary deliberative character a man might do? So we'll get from one to the other, but it will evolve uh, Augustine's reading of this letter and Luther's, which we'll deal with next time. So, literal sense, what's work of the law? Work of the law of Moses. What is justification? That's our central term here that Paul uses. Now, it's a term that's a little bit slippery in English, because English has lots of root words, and we like to use them all the time. So there's a whole family of English terms, and this is the only spot where I wish I had a board. Upright, righteous, just, justified, all of those come from one fundamental root in Greek. You can read it as a different but uniform root in Latin. DK means the standard of a behavior. It can mean custom, usage, law, but it basically indicates what is right, objectively. And someone who follows that standard of behavior is said to be dikaios, upright, righteous, or just. And then his quality of being such a good guy in a person is called righteousness. So when someone is doing what he should be doing, we can call him a just man or an upright man, or we can speak of his righteousness. Does that make sense? We jump root words in English, but it's all one root word in Greek. DK, dikaios, dikaiosune, so too in Latin. Jus, justus, justitia. So I just wanted to grab that. Now that term comes to us from covenant language. Paul is bringing in Hebrew background here. A covenant, as you know, is a solemn agreement between two parties. Yes? And this is the Old Testament's favored way of speaking of man's relationship to God. An inferior party to a superior party in a covenant relation. The superior party is the Lord or Master. The inferior party is the Ebed, is the servant. And when the servant is abiding by the terms of the covenant, he is said to be upright, just. And when he's not, he's said to be wicked or unjust. Now, the question for Paul, the question for all of us, is that we find ourselves as fallen human beings, as sinners, in a position of wickedness, injustice. Ever since Adam, this is how we encounter the human condition. Fallen, in violation of God's design for what we should be. The question is then, how do we regain a state of being upright, righteous, just, being before God as we should be? That process of going from being unjust to just is called justification. Justificatio. You're being made just. Is everyone good there? So that's where that term comes from. You want to say it one more time? Yeah. So when we're thinking about man in the sinful condition, he is no longer as God designs him to be. Therefore, he is unjust. He is not meeting covenant expectations that his creator had for him. So he finds himself in a state of not being upright, being a little bit bent or broken, lopsided, not doing what he ought to be doing. 
Therefore, he's in a state of condemnation before his covenant Lord, God in this case, and not some Middle Eastern potentate. Because these were political terms too. So the question is, nobody likes being in that position because following on being in a state of injustice comes punishment. And nobody wants that. So you want to be saved from the punishment that follows on the condition of injustice. Well, how do you go from being unjust back to just? That's justification. Now, how does that happen? Paul argues, not by works of the law, but rather only through what? Faith. So not by works of the law, but through faith. Not a little works of the law, not a little faith, but not through the law at all, but rather through faith. So that's going to be the central thing that we have to grasp. What is the relationship between Jewish history up to that point in time and the Christian reality of the new covenant? And what is the relationship between the law of Moses and the law of Christ and what is the relationship between the sinner and his condition of wickedness, grace and faith, and his ultimate coming into his heavenly reward? That's why this is such a capital question. Paul speaks rather softly to other audiences. The Corinthians had wickedness that I won't even mention in mixed company. You've got to read that kind of stuff in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> But at least they understood they were supposed to be living in the Spirit and they had their sins washed away in the cross of Christ. The Galatians had pushed that so far to the side that Paul remonstrates them as having their entire salvation in jeopardy. He says, if justification were through the law, then Christ died in vain. Those are strong words. And so what we're going to do next time is we're going to zero in on the arguments in 3 and 4. Because that's where Paul begins to defend this thesis from several different angles. That man is justified by faith and not by works of the law. And so if you want to take a look at the handout I gave you, that'll give you kind of the structure of my remarks for the first half of next time's talk. And then after we read three and four through and get a sense of what Paul is doing, we're then going to, having given a reading of the epistle, I'll sort of package up the Catholic picture for you and then contrast that to the Protestant reading of the epistle and say a little bit about where that came from. So major questions are going to be, what does Paul mean by faith? What does the church mean by faith? What do Protestants mean by faith? What does Paul mean by works? What is the Catholic language of works about? And what is the Protestant language of works? And then freedom, which was such a huge word for Luther. Uh, what is the freedom that Paul speaks of, the freedom from the law, the freedom for, as Paul says, faith working through love. All of those are going to be central questions in examining Galatians 3 and 4, and we'll probably stop at 5.14. Okay, great. So next time we'll look at 3 and 4. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you, Eric. And we'll do a, a little bit of Q&A. If... I've had a hard time uh, making putting the uh, timeline in Galatians 1 and 2 together with the timeline in Acts. Okay. Have, having a hard time making them jive together. Okay. I if you could take a crack at that. Sure. Well, let me just... Here, I hope this doesn't count against my time, Sabatino. I closed it. Now I've got to open it again. It does. Okay. 
so really quickly, uh, maybe just to grab the biggest associations first, and then we can worry about some of the smaller ones. First, the Acts 2.1. Maybe we can work backwards. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. That's the council. So Galatians 2.1 corresponds to Acts 15.1 and following. Then we can work backwards. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was still not known to the churches of Christ in Judea. Uh, that is usually uh, starting in 118, after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and then I went to Syria and Cilicia. That's usually corresponding to uh, Paul's visit to Jerusalem that's recounted in Acts 9.26, if I'm doing this correctly, not too, not too fast. Maybe, let me reboot that and start this way. The narratio is a flashback, kind of like the old television shows where the screen goes wavy and he starts to remember way back when. So starting in 1.13, Paul is remembering way back when, when he was Saul. So 1.13 is Paul flashing back to his persecution of the church. little biographic in 14. 15 and 16 correspond to Acts 9, the conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, then he goes away for a period of time to recollect himself. Then he goes down to the church in Jerusalem, and that would be, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, corresponding to Acts 9.26. And then, in 2.1, that corresponds to Acts 15. Part of it is that you're getting a flashback, and that would be expected if you know what a narratio is. That's a, it's a great uh, question, because that's going to be your foundation for any further interpretation of the text, is the historical narrative. I want to encourage you guys over this next week or so to read through Acts and read through Galatians. Use Acts as that, as that framework, and then to read Galatians. Um, and uh, you're going to be able to launch next week as he's talking about these things because you'll be very familiar with the storyline. I guess, Professor, you're talking about how with justice it's a matter of changing from sort of your original sinful state to becoming a person who's walking right with God. And I was just wondering, does that also look, I guess most of us when we think of justice just think of being punished so that you, you know, justice is when the king kind of knocks you down. Is that a biblical concept or is that just some other idea we have? Does that relate linguistically? Kinda, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. There's two things that, that you seize on, Lucas, with the concept of justice. One, there's the law, right? And Paul will develop this at, at some length, that the law's job, first and foremost, is sort of to punish transgression. We're often most painfully aware of the law when we run afoul of it. Uh, but we do speak, even in English, of someone being a just or upright man, or law-abiding citizen. Now, we're not talking about secular law here. We're talking about divine law. But we can speak of... Uh, someone being just in terms of doing what he ought to do, meeting all of his obligations, uh, that's a positive sense. Maybe a smaller and more negative sense is someone who doesn't do any of the aforementioned bad things, and then you recite the criminal code. But there are two, there are two senses there. Injustice, privation, running foul of something, but justice is not merely not, not doing a bad thing, but is a state of doing what one ought. Uh, because this is part of the problem with the modern thing, and we'll get into this with freedom next time, is that uh, the modern age, freedom is freedom from. You know, I don't have something coercing me. Modern notion of freedom is freedom getting up in the morning and having lots of options. You know, I can have 36 kinds of breakfast cereal. The classical notion of freedom is not only freedom from, but freedom for. So we'll see so too with justice, right? There's a specification of what one ought not be doing, but that also has together with it a notion of what it means to be upright, 
Fundamentally, the covenant sets the expectations, so to be just is to be living according to the spirit of the covenant. I have a question then. Okay. Um, in uh, in uh, Acts, with your, the text you were quoting about Peter and the conversion of the Gentiles, it seems as though the spirit is given before baptism, like confirmation is given first and then baptism second. Could you talk about that? <laughs> Do I get the sense I'm running into some kind of east-west liturgical no, dispute? No, 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 no. <laughs> They're going oh, to be very no. careful there. Uh, you're referring to the baptism of Cornelius, right? Yeah. And so the, the Spirit's poured out upon them, and, I mean, wh- what I see there is there's two things. One, it's a visible outpouring of the Spirit, right? Because uh, they speak in tongues, right? For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And so, normally when the Spirit's poured out, it's invisible, right? Holy Spirit, spiritual creature, can't see it. So we have a couple of things going on here. One, there's a grace communicated, which is reflected by their receiving God in faith. That's invisible. But then God adds a special, additional feature to this prominent conversion, which is the visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a sign of divine favor. You can trace that throughout the Old Testament, God often poured out, they're usually called charismatic gifts, the Holy Spirit in some visible way on those who had his favor. Kings when they're anointed, prophets sometimes, priests when they're ordained, uh, and then of course the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the apostles in the upper room in Pentecost. So I think that's an outward sign of a normally invisible reality. What is the invisible reality here? That by faith uh, they have received the blessing of having their sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. They hear the word of the gospel and they believe. And so there's already a motion of grace, right? No one as an adult thinks to approach the baptismal font unless grace first move him. And so I, I think what, if, at least as I read that, what you're seeing there is the Gentiles hear the word of the gospel, grace moves them. They have faith. They receive a certain faith. They get the gift of the Holy Spirit to desire completed conversion, which occurs in baptism with the imposition of hands and confirmation. And so as a sign that they have been chosen by God, they are worthy for the baptismal font, uh, we get that particular special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a visible way. So you can be assured of their election just as you're assured of the election of like David or the apostles. So an outward sign that they have indeed received the gift that makes them fit for baptism. Okay, thank you. Or is Cornelius justified at this point, or at baptism, or what? Yeah, so uh, that's going to be part of what we're going to, since I got to do promissory notes, uh, this is going to be the question, right? Uh, Very good question. You hit on what is the relationship between faith and baptism in the process of going from being not justified to justified. So uh, I'm hoping to fatten out when we talk about Especially, I mean, is this the troparion? We'll just get a little, little shout out to the east. I'm not, I'm not eastern, right? So I, I, I can't do this as fluidly as Sabatino can, but I think this is a troparion for Easter season. Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then you guys add, hallelujah. The faith and baptism unity there, 3.26 and 3.27 For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I hope to expound on that and talk about the inner linkage between faith and baptism as we see it in Paul in 3.26 and 27. Final question. 
I'm sure you're probably going to address this next week, okay. but will you make a distinction between what's expected of us in terms of the law of Moses regarding morality and ritual yeah. actions? Okay. Yeah, that's going to be a major question. If you were a Pharisee Christian seeing these Gentile shlemiels come into the church, you would say, what wild rumpus is this going to be? They don't know the left from the right. You're going to let them in and expect nothing? So we'll, we'll talk about that. Thank you, Professor. Okay, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.